A study came out in 2020 discussing the role of patient-physician relationship on health-related quality of life and pain in cancer patients. The study was really interesting as it found that the patients who reported having a higher level of respect and a better relationship with their physician reported higher health-related quality of life and lower pain levels. That's right. The relationship that the patient had with their doctor influenced the outcome of treatment, which I find pretty intriguing because cancer is not really a pray it away type of thing. You know, just think more positively and you'll probably start feeling a little bit better. No, it requires a lot of medical intervention. And so it shouldn't be a surprise that the relationship clients have with their therapist in the mental health world is also a significant factor in the quality of their care. But the thing that I find surprising is not that it's a factor. It's that it's the most important factor. That's right. The most important part about therapy is the relationship that you have with your therapist. Not if your therapist does CBT or does EMDR, but the relationship that you have with them. Welcome to Relatable, a Thrive Therapy podcast. My name is Coulter Bloxham, and I'm joined by my friends, Kayla Gensler and Lauren Mokeri. We are three licensed professional counselors running a therapy community called Thrive. And Relatable is a podcast teaching you how to better relate to other people, better relate to your emotions, better relate to yourself. And I guess today, how to relate to your therapist, because we're going to be talking about the relationship you have with your therapist. And so, ladies, I'm wondering what y'all are thinking, what's going through your mind. Um, How are you feeling about the story that we just heard? I think what comes up for me first is remembering what it's like to be a therapist in grad school because, man, if you aren't a therapist, the thing that they super drill into our heads in grad school over and over and over again is that importance of our relationship with the client and that it is the most important thing, even over the modalities that they spend time teaching us. And, you know, as a human, I kind of, I guess, as a human who's a therapist, I guess I should say, um, I kind of then split it into two lanes um, that I think we could probably all spend some time talking through. Um, So one is, as you hear this back as a therapist, some of the things that kind of first come up. And then also, most of us who are therapists are also clients at some point. And so kind of just thinking through how this lands as a client, what what you've shared in this vignette. I think if you're a therapist, you better have been a client at some point. We hope so. Is that like a hard and fast rule? I try to stay away from like you 100% should have, but I might say that like if you're a therapist, you 100% should have been in therapy at some point. It it land. I noted it landed in my body as like a little bit of a black and white thing, and I I think that I previously have felt like that's a rule in my own head. But then I was talking to a colleague at one point who shared with me that they had not been in their own therapy, and I had like co facilitated stuff with this therapist, and was like, wow, she's still an excellent therapist. So. I think maybe it's like a 90%. Like I would 100% recommend it to every therapist. I do think it's really important to know what it feels like to sit on the other side of the room. Yeah. And maybe if a therapist just like hasn't started that journey yet, I would just recommend like 
when are you going to start that journey? Think yeah. think about that. Mm-hmm. I'm actually going to support you, Coulter. I feel very, <laughs> very firm about the fact that that is, should be mandatory. It was mandatory in my grad school. I don't even think it necessarily is like, so you work through all your crap. I, mm-hmm. I think about it a little bit more. Well, that part is important, but also the, do you know what it's like to be on the other side? Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, mm-hmm. that's just a really valuable experience to have. Yeah. Yeah. And I think having it be mandatory in grad school, like that's something that I would get behind. Like all grad schools should have that because then it it's not a question that, you know, the therapist or potential therapist has to sit and think with. It was not even suggested in mm. my grad school. Wow. I did, of course, pursue that on my own because I had other people in the field recommended and that was something I knew felt important to me. But yeah, just thinking about going through my program and not ever having that be. They didn't suggest that at DeVry for you? <laughs> <laughs> wow, no, no shade on DeVry if anybody's gone to school there. <laughs> I can't even recover from that. I did not expect you to say that. Again, culture the personality higher. Um, <laughs> but just kind of to circle back, you know, hearing that vignette from the perspective of being a therapist and uh, yes, having it drilled into our heads that the relationship is the most in- important part for our clients in grad school is something that I like to tether myself to almost regular, like so regularly, I would say probably, if not daily, weekly, to remind myself to stay out of pressing the modality that I'm using and really focusing in on the relationship that I build with the client. And I'll say just even as an attachment therapist, the thing that I know about this idea of the relationship with the client, it's so, so important to create that safety so that the client is then down the road, willing to take risks with the modality that we're using to explore their inner world. If we don't have that relationship with them and we don't allow them to then feel safe and secure, then why the heck should they trust us to do this weird woo-woo crap sometimes (laughs) that we do in therapy settings to grow if they don't have that bond with us? So it's something that I'm constantly reminding myself is that first and foremost, most important thing that we do in the room. Yeah, the language that I tend to reference for that is like the therapeutic relationship should be the container for all of the other work that we're doing in the therapy process. And I like that visual of a container. It's like this is what's going to sort of hold trust in place. It's going to hold, we're bringing up hard feelings that generally we may not be used to sitting with or we may not be used to trusting somebody else to sit with us. And so in order for us to really be able to stay in our window of tolerance with hard emotions, we really do have to feel like, okay, this person understands me and they're for me and I feel like they have some competence to hold this with me. I like that analogy of being the container because I'm just thinking of like, if there's no container, then nothing gets held. Yeah. Yeah. And that can feel really chaotic and it can feel really similar to past trauma that we've experienced. And so that's something to to be really aware of in our own therapeutic process or therapeutic relationship is that there is risk. I think all of us are required in our consent forms to talk about risks of therapy. There is risk of feeling re-traumatized or getting activated and being pushed outside of our window if we haven't first kind of checked out together in the relationship. Do we have this secure container? Does it feel like before we start jumping into all of the messy things and the things that can be really activating that we trust that we know what to do with those things when they come up? Right. And even on that note, you know, like – 
from an attachment perspective, again, a lot of us didn't have that opportunity to build that safety with our caregivers or in past relationships. So it really is so important to have that built in the therapy room for, to be able to go and access some of those memories like you're talking about, Lauren. So yeah, I think that that illustrates it super well. This is a can of worms, but this is why I don't think AI can ever take over mm. this job. Mm-hmm. And that might just be a protective behavior for me and you know who knows how it's going to advance. But think about, I don't know, I, I would almost say, if you want to challenge me on that, it's like, all right, go tell ChatGPT like your deepest secret right now and ask it to respond to you empathetically and see what that feels like. See if it's like, oh, wow, I feel really understood. And and I think when you go into therapy, there's this like real risk in real vulnerability and it has to be real. And I don't think you could recreate that with artificial intelligence. I actually think that the drive to even want to recreate that with artificial intelligence is in itself a protective behavior, Mm -hmm. right? And it's not that we can't still use artificial intelligence to help us with some things, to help us organize. I think you could probably teach it to like perform a certain modality, like you could probably teach it enough things, like enough type of responses. I agree. And I have seen it actually be helpful for people in that way. But to the point that you were making about the vulnerability piece, I think that is so important. And one of the things we say in therapy a lot is we experience a lot of our trauma and wounds in the context of relationships. And so we also need to experience our healing in the context of relationships. And it's hard to do because it's it's vulnerable and it's risky, especially when we've been burned in the past. Um, And so that's the piece with, you know, AI, you're not going to get that vulnerability. You can be like, great, tell me something fact-based. We're staying in content versus being in process together. Mm, Yeah. Yeah. Well, and on the flip side of this first point, you know, that with the vignette, the idea that the relationship is the most important thing. I also think it's important that we address that from the standpoint of being the client in therapy because all of us have been to therapy and or are in therapy currently. And um, so we know also what that looks like on the other side and feels like. And and I'll say, I'm curious what you guys have experienced in your past. But for me, I have fired a therapist because of the personality, because I didn't feel connected to them And just knowing that, that I'm never going to really, this is at least the story I tell myself, I'm never really going to feel like I can trust you enough to do the deep work that I know I have to do. And I just need somebody who's a little different for me. And so that knowing of like, this doesn't feel good. I don't really jive with this person. I've had that experience of having to move forward from somebody. And I wonder, have you guys experienced that? So I think I actually have gotten really lucky. Although even as I say that, it wasn't totally luck. I've seen four different therapists in different seasons of my own therapeutic work. And with actually the very first one, so the first one I saw, I was in grad school and I just kind of sought out, like I wanted to try EMDR. So I looked up an EMDR therapist who happened to take my insurance and it was kind of just a magical fit. Like she was really great. I thought the personality meshed really well and Yeah, that felt kind of like a unicorn knowing what I know now about how hard it can be to find, Mm -hmm. you know, the match of like insurance and location and modality and personality fit. And then beyond that, when I sought out additional therapists, I already was a seasoned therapist myself. And so I was really, really picky about even— so much harder. Yeah. And I mean, I had a therapist. I would drive an hour to get to her office. I paid what felt like a lot of money at the time um, to me, but was so, so invaluably worth it. Like, it just was really important to me that I had somebody 
who came highly recommended. I have also had four different therapists and I have never fired any of them. I've moved on from them. And, you know, kind of in this current season, I have a therapist that I probably haven't seen in like a year, but my wife and I go to couples therapy with a different one. And so I'm including him in the mix. And it's always just been for like different issues that I've had to face. And it's also been really helpful as a therapist to kind of see like, oh, here's how you're doing Mm -hmm. therapy. Maybe I could borrow a piece from there. Mm -hmm. Kayla, how many therapists have you had? Gosh, I actually was just sitting here trying to think and count that in my in my head right now. And I don't I don't know if I I think it's like four or five is what I would say. But I've done couples and individual. And so um shout out to whoever has helped me along this journey. Uh, it, you matter. All right. So people are trying to figure out like how do I find the right therapist for myself? I think that the most important place to start is with fluff. Mm. Mm-hmm. Which everybody knows what that is. Of course. Everybody in this room knows what it is. Okay. I Kayla, like hearing Kayla talk about it. So fluff, it, fluff is not a real term. Mm-mm. It is a term that we made up at a happy hour. I think Kayla was the initial inventor of it. Kayla, what is fluff? Yeah. Fluff is, is gosh, I'm like, how do I define this? So, so low fluff and high fluff are kind of the two categories that we're looking at. And then obviously somewhere in between that. Um, but fluff is like the the sweetness of the therapist, the warmness, the just the loving, nurturing, just really empathetic and sweet. And of course, all of us as- The person who like really feels with you, like that's the high fluff therapist. Yes, high fluff. And of course, all of us as as therapists have to have, I wouldn't say have to, probably have some of those elements. But yes, Coulter, high fluff would be somebody that is just, it's very obvious that they're very nurturing and and loving in the therapy room. And on the flip side of that, then low fluff would be somebody who's a bit more direct in their approach, right? They're going to be going to call you on what they see and going to going to really highlight the things that probably need to change and I I think like no BS, right? Is low fluff. And neither of these are better than the other. Mm-mm. It's just kind of the style that you're looking for and like I've had people I've connected so many people to therapy over the years and I've kind of tried to figure out if someone needs someone that's really just kind of like warm and empathetic or if they need someone who's like, I'm going to tell you mm-hmm. like it is, like, mm-hmm. and I'm going to call you out on your stuff. And people need different things. Right. I really appreciate when I've had consultation calls with prospective clients who do know that about themselves. Um, I would say more often I hear clients who have maybe tried other therapists and experienced the low fluff thing and they're or the high fluff thing, and they're needing more of the low fluff. So they'll call and say, I really need somebody who is willing to call me on my shit or be more directive. But then I also can think of clients who have, just based on their own personalities and attachment histories, like really, really need things to feel a little slower and a little more gentle. And so I loved how you said that, Coulter. It's not that one of these is better than the other. It's just something that we need to check in with ourselves in the current season we're in, like which is going to feel more supportive for us. Mm -hmm. And I would argue that it is equally as important as the specialty that we're seeking out. Having that awareness of what do I want to work on and in what kind of approach is going to help me get to that place, but also what type of therapy personality is going to help me with that. And there might be different seasons for different things, right? Just like there are for different specialties that we might seek out. There might be different seasons that I need a little bit more of a high fluff therapist, and there might be different seasons that I need more of a low fluff therapist. But to know it feels really important as you're on this journey of finding the right fit for you. 
I've always sought out low fluff therapists in the past. Our current couples therapist is very high fluff, which I didn't think I would necessarily like because I'm usually a little bit more process oriented. Like, all right, just like, let's, let's get to it. Like, tell me what we need to do. But he's much slower, very warm, empathetic, safe, which when I notice I'm like, this will be really good for my wife, but I've noticed, oh, this is really good for me also. So. Yeah. And I think that can be a cool openness to have going into. We don't actually have to know the answer to that, especially if we're starting therapy for the first time. Um, for anybody listening, if you're panicking, like, oh my gosh, I don't know. Like you can go in and feel it out in the initial consultation call for sessions, which kind of brings me to a question. What do you guys think about how long it should take us to feel out if a new therapist is the right fit? Mm-hmm. I have a rule of three that I highly suggest for all my friends and even my clients that are trying different, like maybe they're seeing me for individual and they need to seek out a couples therapist. I say three sessions should be enough of an experience to be able to determine whether this person is a good fit for you. What do you guys think? I think that's a pretty good number also. I don't know if I have anything to add to that. You know, it's interesting because I think I generally have told people like really pay attention to what you feel in that first session If you feel like in the first session that you're leaving really feeling like, I don't feel like the therapist got me. Like, I don't feel like the therapist heard me. I've heard some, I'm thinking of friends and family in particular who have shared some things with me that they experienced in an initial session where they were like, I just, that really felt like a miss. I think if you know yourself pretty well and you trust yourself, maybe if you've done some therapy before that you can lean into that intuition in the first session. But the thing that I liked hearing you name the rule of three is that a lot of times we can come into therapy in a season of like, I have stuff I need to get through and I just want this to like be quicker than maybe it is. And so it can feel hard to like go through those initial sessions. Or expensive. Or expensive, yeah, where we're really just like building the relationship and we're answering a lot of questions that don't necessarily feel like we're getting into the work yet because we're still just giving the therapist a chance to assess and get to know us. And so I do think there's actually a lot of value in being able to kind of slow down maybe some of the irritation that could come up if it's just about a pacing thing. Yeah. Hearing you describe some of that maybe makes me change my answer a little bit. I have two thoughts on it. One is I went and test drove a car one time and I remember thinking like, I'm going to love this car. And then I didn't like it. But I was also in a really bad mood and I had a really bad headache Mm -hmm. that day. And I was like, I thought I was going to like this car. And I'm like, you know what? I think I need to go for another test drive. And I was like, oh, I do like this car. (laughs) But then also like if you go into an appointment and there's something just like, you know, egregious or just like, man, this is really off. You go home, do some of that reflection. Like, is this me? Like, was I just hungry? Or like, Mm -hmm. you know, I think of one time uh, this was a provider, a doctor I had who said something just like pretty like rude to me. And I remember just being like, I don't want to see you anymore. Just from like that one thing, like the fact that you would say that to me was really ridiculous. So Yeah. And I I think like, I like what you're saying, Coulter, because that's really where the rule of three came from. Because we, all of us are humans and and going into therapy is a very human experience. And and we have to make room for the fact that we might, the client might show up in a headspace that isn't great to really fully assess that. But also the therapist may not be, maybe they have a cold that day and maybe they aren't on their best A game or they're spending a lot of time on assessment like Lauren was saying. And so we don't really get to have that full therapeutic experience experience that maybe we would have in the second or third session. Yes. Sometimes people come in with something really complicated too. And so you're just kind of spending the whole session, like, I'm just trying to get my head around this right now. And I feel that way with OCD quite often is like, Mm -hmm. this is really nuanced Mm -hmm. and 
we're just doing a lot of like discovery and poking and prodding. Mm -hmm. I think regardless of how many sessions, whether it's one, two, or three, that we're kind of feeling out the initial relationship, the things that I try to point people to pay attention to are what does it feel like in your body? Like, do you feel an openness to want to share more or do you feel yourself kind of guarded with this therapist? How much trust do you feel in their competence level? Which really is just like, do I feel like this therapist knows what they're doing? Do I feel like they know what they're talking about? And I just want to name that a therapist doesn't have to be super seasoned to be able to convey that. Um, A brand new intern can be able to convey, hey, I'm under supervision and I staff my cases with my clinical supervisor and um, here are the things they specialize in and this is what I'm learning and really comfortable in. If there's anything I don't know, I'm going to take it to this expert. So great, there's competence there, even if it's somebody who's pretty green. And then I think just a sense of like, do I feel like they get me? Like when I say something, when I share something, are they giving me reflections back that really help me feel like, oh, they get it. Like maybe they're putting it in their own words that is even helping something click for me versus maybe if it just feels like, okay, I feel like I just talked for an hour and I have no idea if they understood me or not. So those are kind of the three things I think it's helpful to pay attention to. I want to transition us a little bit into beyond those initial sessions, some of the dynamics about being in relationship to a therapist. What are some of the things that initially come up for you guys just when you think about that client-therapist relationship? I'm thinking around, you know, uh, we just like the importance of the relationship is super stressed in grad school. A lot of us are also taught to be really frightened by self-disclosure. And I think that is also a piece that we need to consider in that, you know, initial session with the therapist as well as going forward, how much of that feels good to us and how much of it really feels like, is this my session or is this your session? Mm-hmm. Um, so I think in that piece, basically with self self-disclosure, what we're talking about is how much is the therapist sharing about their life in respect to what you're sharing and bringing into the office? Yeah, I think about like the grad school answers that we were taught to give. And I think grad school's job is to kind of put you in a box and then hopefully like your internship site is to help you get out of that box a little bit. And so here, let's, let's model something. Okay. I'm going to, I'm going to give the grad school answer to this question. Let's pretend you're my client. Just ask me how old I am. How old are you, Coulter? I'm wondering why that's important to you right now. (laughs) That's exactly the grad school answer that they teach us. Versus now I would just say my age. Yeah. Yeah, and they also tell us to say, what's coming up for you, right? What's happening for you that you want to know that kind of question? Yeah, there's something important about knowing my age (laughs) to you. Yeah, or this session is about you, not about me, right? And sometimes that actually is true because there is a level of questions that might come up for you as a client that you want to know about your therapist, and that might be appropriate to share some of those things in in order to feel safe and connected, right? I might want to know if I'm coming in and I'm talking to you about uh, my relationship, I might want to know if you're in a relationship or if you've had experiences like this before and or if I'm talking about my children and how hard it is to be a parent I might want to know if you've had that experience and I think it's valid to want to know that doesn't the research show though that people who therapists who don't have kids actually make better children's therapists I, I have literally no idea. I've never You're the heard. research guy. Oh gosh, <laughs> I just like, I feel like people do this on podcasts all the time. They're just like, you throw out random stuff. I'm pretty sure I've read that before because 
they get less pulled into the mm. parenting dynamics of like, oh, like here's what I would do or something. Like they can be a little bit more removed. That's interesting. I'm sure there's a both and in there, right? Like there's going to be some places where like you get it more and can maybe understand some of the nuances that we might not think of if we've not had the experience. And then other places to that point that you just made where it's like, okay, I might not be as activated by something that I otherwise would be. I mean, Kayla, when... I hired you on here. You were getting really into EFT and attachment work and couples work, and you weren't even in a yeah, relationship. Yeah, I was single. I was single. And I think the thing that they did teach us in grad school, which I do think is valid here, is that you know when we go to see a doctor when we're sick, the doctor doesn't have to be sick or have the exact same disease as we have in order to treat us. And that is one thing I have always leaned on and I do feel is true. Right? I don't need my doctor to have the same exact illness as me to, to trust that they'll be able to treat me. Yeah. That's such an interesting one for how you handle things when you have had an experience that is similar to your client. And then I think, you know, we can kind of talk about that in a way of like, if you're the client and your therapist has experienced something similar, like how do you want that to be interacted with in the room? And so what do you all do when you are talking to someone and they're telling their story and you're like, oh, this is similar to my story? Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. I actually have a tendency to disclose less if my client is going through something that is similar to me. And that's for a couple reasons. I think the biggest one is that I really want the space to be for the client and I don't want to put any burden on them even of feeling like, oh, well, if Lauren's gone through this, then she's going to have some thoughts about the right way to go through it. Um, Or if I go through it differently than she did, then maybe she's going to judge me for that. Or I don't know, even kind of detracting from the focus on them of like, well, what did you do? Or what did you feel in this? It's like, I really want the space to be free for you to just explore your own experience without having to worry about somebody else's. I don't necessarily think it's helpful in the therapy setting to need to empathize through saying like, oh, I've gone through that same trauma or that same thing. Mm-hmm. I, For me, I'm going to – I know you both said you know, that you'll do it less in that case. For me, I'm going to give the classic therapist answer, which is it depends. Um, I would say grief is one of my babies that I love to do in therapy, and I do think – in that world, it is really helpful to really through some experience and to to disclose in in order to kind of help, gosh, just even relate to what it's like to be in that first stage of grieving. And I also think that a lot of the substance abuse community does self-disclose in that respect too. And I do think that that helps that population. So I think it just Mm -hmm. depends um, which issue is coming up. Those are two really good exceptions to that, or maybe not just exceptions, but examples of that. Cause I think that you're right. Like if you've been through deep grief, it's really helpful to be sitting next to someone that's like, I have felt that before. I know what that feels like because you're just like, you don't know what it feels like to have your heart ripped out. And it's so lonely, right? So even just knowing, okay. and, And being able to see you've gone through it and you're upright, sometimes that really just feels so like hopeful. I think also in the substance abuse world that so many of the best substance abuse counselors I know have stories of recovery themselves. And it it almost feels like kind of a given that like, you know, you can't help me if you've never been through this. And I don't know if that's true or not, but... I I absolutely think that you're right, Kayla, that there's going to be a continuum and we need to be able to use discernment and kind of know based on the topic at hand where that's going to feel helpful. I also think that it's valid to be able to discern just 
relationship to relationship with different clients, yes, you know, that's true. what's going to be helpful. I was even kind of thinking about the initial conversation culture you started of, you know, a client asking about age or relationship status. And I can think of some clients where I am actually curious, why is that coming up for you? Why is it that you want to know that? Whereas there's other clients where it's like, yeah, I'm 33. Like I don't feel any weirdness about saying that. But I think as we go through the assessment too, that's part of what we're looking for as therapists is what are your own attachment dynamics? What are the places where maybe you generally feel more comfortable knowing more about the other person? And that's a place that you lean on to deflect a little bit from focus on yourself. Or maybe you have a history of like really strong mistrust and it really does help you to build some safety. So I do think it depends client to client. And I think as a client, it's also okay to let your therapist know, like, this is why it's important to me to know something. Or I've even had clients who come in saying, hey, I know about myself that I have a tendency sometimes to ask for certain things. And I actually have learned about myself that that's not always helpful for me. So I just want you to be aware that that's something that might come up. Yeah. And it's one of the things that just as listeners who may be in the process of seeking out therapy that we encourage you to pay attention to because sometimes there is an inappropriate level of disclosure. And that's something that we also want to stress that if the session is feeling more about the therapist disclosing things about their personal life, that's something that should be a red flag. I also generally think it feels different if a therapist is disclosing something that's going on in the present. You know, if a therapist is like, oh, I'm also going through a divorce, or I also just lost a family member last week, or I also just like, if something's happening that's still really raw, um, that's going to feel different in the space versus a therapist saying, like, oh, I've also been through grief. I've also been through this kind of experience in the past. One thing I'd really like for people to know is that your therapist if they're a good therapist, probably has thicker skin than you think. And so telling that person, like, here's what's going to be helpful for me is usually really helpful for me to hear as a client or even someone saying like, I think I need to transition to somebody different. That's one of the things people are always afraid to do is they're like, oh, I'm going to hurt my therapist's feelings like because I need to do some different type of work. I always feel really good getting somebody to a different person that's maybe going to be a better fit for them. Mm -hmm. I'm so glad you're talking about that point because I think that's true. It can feel really scary to tell your therapist I something's not feeling like a good fit for me or even um, something happened in the last session that didn't feel great for me. And therapy is such an amazing opportunity to practice that in a way that would feel way too scary often to practice in any outside relationships because your therapist ideally should be trained to know how to respond to that without getting reactive or defensive and really wanting support for you to be the utmost goal in the room. And so I've had some really powerful experiences, actually both as client and therapist, um, with repair be between you know myself and a therapist where maybe something was said where I'm like, oh, here's kind of how that landed on me. And then my therapist was able to really hold space in a way that was transformative for me where I was like, oh, I don't think I've ever had anybody meet my anger with such compassion before. I love that part of therapy is kind of being the place that people get to work out some mm -hmm. of that stuff. Mm -hmm. And yeah. so I think that's such a delicate thing because as humans, we can want to go and like, I hurt your feelings or like I offended you in some way. I am sorry. And so like kind of immediately taking ownership over it. And I think there's some really valuable therapeutic work that can be done in that space going through the like, yeah, like I just did this. 
I said that thing to you. This is what it landed for you. Man, what is it? What was it like to go home with that? And just like kind of really hold that space. And that's what's so different about a therapeutic relationship than just like a friend to friend relationship. Cause it's really kind of a one way street. It's like, you know, this, it doesn't really matter. Like how I feel about you telling me this right right now. Yeah. It actually makes me think back to the episode that we did on being relational over being right or being in process versus being in content. Like ideally the therapy room is one of the best places to practice that because we really can focus on what was just the process of what happened for you when that landed in that way or what was the process of when that fear came up for you or when you got angry about that thing versus kind of getting stuck in that like, oh, well, you didn't perceive it in the right way or that's not how I meant it or yeah, I'm sorry. Let me just try to take that away really quick. Yeah. That is one of my more favorite things to experience as a therapist is a client having enough trust and relationship with me to come back in the room and say, hey, last time this didn't go in the way that I needed it to. And for us to be able to work through that, that feels so cool to be a part of that and to see that growth and the willingness to even bring that forward. Yeah. I think that's what can be powerful about therapy too, is because you don't get that experience outside of the therapy room that often. And I would just even say for myself, like as a therapist who leaves the therapy office and then goes and interacts in the world, like a regular human, I'm not necessarily that great at it. If someone brings something like you said, this and really upset me, like I might move into defensiveness pretty quickly, but when I'm sitting in the therapist chair, it's a lot easier Mm -hmm. to not do that. Well, and I'll even just piggyback on that culture and and reminding people that therapists are also humans. And so sometimes something that's happening in the therapeutic room will trigger something within us, right? That's, what is that, counter-transference? Yeah, when it's happening for the therapist, we call it counter-transference. When it's happening for the client, like maybe the therapist said something and it just happened to subconsciously remind the client of their mother or their relationship. It's called transference. Right. Yeah. And so that counter-transference can happen for us. And if it does, we might react in a way or respond in a way that does feel in contrast to how we usually show up. So having that opportunity to repair that, like you said earlier, is so key. And it's so valuable, honestly, as a therapist. Like I appreciate you saying that, Kayla, because countertransference, it's unavoidable. It's going to happen at different points. But it's so valuable as a therapist to then be able to look back outside of that moment and be like, oh, yep, I can see what got activated for me there and how I kind of moved into a version of protection, whether that was defensiveness or whether it was trying to actually fix my client's feelings rather than staying in the process with them. Like We're still vulnerable to that. And so having some generosity to be able to talk about it outside of the moment maybe of that trigger happening and then feeling from there. Are we able to repair this? Are we able to stay connected? I think if we go into it and we feel like, oh, wow, my therapist really held like a defensive stance or they didn't really give me space to process this, then we might make a different decision about what we need from there. Right. And it's okay if that decision is to cut the relationship because you don't feel like you can repair. I mean, sometimes that does happen. And I actually, as you're saying this, I'm like, "Mm, that might have been what happened for me that time. So we've talked through a couple different things, right? We've talked through the relationship with the therapist. We've talked through self-disclosure. And now we're talking through counter-transference and transference. I wonder what other sort of like grad school-y taboo things do we want to maybe talk through? I would actually like, I don't know if this is grad school taboo-y, but I'd really like to talk through modality a little bit because that's one thing that I hear often from people is like, I need a therapist who does 
blank. What do you all think about someone seeking out a certain modality? Because I mean, we probably have 15 therapists here and, you know, there's maybe like four or five main modalities that people use, but all three of us in the room come from kind of a different school of thought. And I think all three of us are really good therapists. Yeah. I think the modality, really, it's like those, for me, those two areas, the personality and then the modality are the things that really shape the session. And so if you go and you see an EFT, emotionally focused therapist, it is going to be a very different experience than going to see a CBT, cognitive behavioral therapist. That's a, that's a, those are going to be totally different therapeutic experiences, both rewarding depending on what you, what area you want to work on, but certainly it's going to shape the whole feel of a session depending on what type of therapy you're going in for. I think the reality is that clients shouldn't really have a comprehensive understanding of different modalities. Like even as a therapist, like it has taken years to really get a comprehensive understanding of like, oh, what are the differences here and where do we use these different modalities in the most helpful ways? And so that feels like too heavy of a thing, I think, for clients to try to carry. So I tend to encourage clients to focus more on what's the topic that I want help with? What is the issue that I'm hoping somebody kind of specializes in? And then I generally will encourage them in a consultation call to ask the therapist, how do you generally work with this issue? And it's not really going to mean anything to a client as a layman to have a therapist say, oh, I use EMDR, I use IFS, or I use ACT. Like, you know, to just say it that way. I think it's more helpful to be like, here's kind of how I process. I use a little bit more talk therapy or I use more worksheets or I use this thing called emotionally focused therapy. And we really look at this idea of process over content. Mm -hmm. So I I think, you know, rather than coming and being like, I definitely want a therapist who uses this modality, really kind of knowing what's the issue and can I ask a therapist how they work with that and what does it feel like when I'm listening to their response? Yeah, I agree. I think that it's too much for somebody to worry about the modality. I even think that way for people who might refer to us or be kind of in like that therapy adjacent world. Like if I talk to a doctor's office or something, I'm like, you don't really need to be an expert on all like the different types of therapy. You know, here are the things that I work with. And so I do think there are some diagnoses, like I'm an OCD therapist. And so I feel pretty strongly that OCD needs to be treated with exposure and response prevention. And so if I'm a client looking for an OCD therapist, I want to hear that from somebody. And most clients do know that because people with OCD are big time researchers. And so (laughs) they have found out that information in one way or another. But I agree that it's mostly like, this is the issue that I want to work on. And so, you know, I I think there's multiple ways to approach relationship issues. And I I love EFT. I think it's probably the best one. It is the best, Coulter. Okay. (laughs) It's the most evidence-based. I mean, that, that is shown in the research. And again, the relationship you have with the therapist is going to make a huge difference too, just depending on personality and how they navigate dynamics in a couple's room. But I would say that's true. Kayla and I, when we're referring couples outside of Thrive, we do always encourage them, look at the EFT registry because that's really the modality that we trust the most for couples work. I think as a trauma therapist, I generally, like if I have a friend who reaches out to me, like how do I find a good trauma therapist? I'll send them a list of like, here are kind of the top modalities that trauma therapists might be trained in. So it's not that you need an EMDR therapist, but maybe be looking, are they using EMDR, IFS, internal family systems? Are they using sensory motor, somatic experiencing? Like I might just give a list of like, here are some of the well-known modalities that are going to give you a sense that this really is a trauma therapist and not just somebody who's 
using the term trauma-informed without any specialized training in that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I agree with all of that. We kind of touched on this a little bit earlier of like what we're looking for with a therapist. And I think the three main factors that drive for people are area of specialty is number one, not in any order, one area of specialty, two, cost slash insurance. And then three would be convenience, which is like, how far away are they from me? Like, do they do telehealth? Like, can they meet at the days or hours that I want? And and four, their personality. Are they fluff high or fluff low? <laughs> <laughs> yes, let's add that as a subsidiary one because I was like going to, to say triangle. Yeah, I had, a, I had a point I was going for. I was going to say those are the three that I mostly hear from people, and I would encourage people pick two pick two that are the most important. And you might be able to find that person that checks all three boxes because, you know, for me, it's like I'm an OCD therapist. I, practice in a certain zip code with certain days and times and hours, uh, and I take Blue Cross. And so if you're those three things and you know you live a mile away from my office, like, yeah, I'm I'm a great therapist for you. But like, but if you have OCD, I would say like y- you need to see an OCD therapist and you might have to give on some of those other ones a little bit. And you can usually find two of those, but if we need to find all three every time, I think that can keep us from going to therapy. How much do you think therapy should cost, since that's one of your factors up there? I've seen some outrageous numbers recently. I think, Coulter, didn't you tell a story about... Yeah, someone I knew who went for, I I, I don't even want to say it, it was $600 an hour. That's insane to me. I think the ceiling is around $200 an hour. Right now, in this time, like Mm -hmm. that's that's kind of the... The practice Yeah. yeah. I, I think anyone that's going above that has to have like something pretty significant that justifies that. Like I'm thinking like if I wanted to go work with Brene Brown or something, like, yeah, I'm, you know, would probably expect to pay $600 an yeah. hour. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I do think it's, it is one of those three factors like you named that we just have to consider based on the season of life that we're in and the resources that we currently have. I think that people aren't used to necessarily thinking of therapy as something that holds the amount of value that they generally realize it does having gone through a little bit more of it. So it can be hard when we're entering therapy for the first time to be like, oh my gosh, do I want to budget in this amount per month? Or I think about, you know, the beyond the very first time that I went to therapy and used insurance, like I could never use insurance when I'm looking for a therapist because it was so important to me to have this really high caliber, somebody who had been seasoned and in the field for a while and had a handful of specialized trainings. And it's so uncommon that you're going to find somebody who's still taking insurance when they have that level of experience in the field. And so just kind of knowing like, you know, I might have to, it might just be higher risk. Like maybe I do find someone with insurance and it's awesome. And I just have to be on a wait list a little bit longer. So like knowing that we might have to flex something, we probably do have to flex one of the things that we want. I'd love to talk about the insurance piece because I think that a lot of the reasons that therapists will say they don't take insurance aren't actually true. So here are the top reasons that I see that therapists don't take insurance. They say, one, it limits my ability to provide certain levels of care for you or you know, to perform certain therapeutic modalities. Like based on the fact that we can't document that and have it be acceptable by insurance? Yeah. Okay. I have almost never seen anybody be limited by like, I want to do this, but your, your insurance is not going to let me do it. 
Number two is I've heard, and I really hate this one. They say like, it will go on your record. And I hate that one because I think it's really stigmatizing to mental health. And I would say as therapists, we should do better than that. When we are communicating to people, we don't want to say like, Hey, like you might get a diagnosis of generalized anxiety disorder and they're going to put you on the no fly list. If that happens, Mm -hmm. like there are certain professions though, that that is the case. And that is so like enraging. That is true. And that's kind of why I said no fly list because I know that's true for pilots. And I've had pilots that are like, I don't want any record of this. Yeah. One of my friends is telling me he does assessments for pilots and it's like, and if you've ever even been on an antidepressant, like you need to go through these assessments to continue to fly again. I, I also agree that that is, is totally ridiculous. And then, you know, those are probably the two main reasons that people, here's the biggest reason though, insurance doesn't pay well. Yeah. They don't pay well. And so we have a contract with Blue Cross here at Thrive. And since we are kind of a bigger facility, we were able to negotiate a higher rate as to where it makes sense for us to be able to utilize that insurance contract. But there's insurance contracts out there that pay like $70 a session. And I would say if your therapist is making $70 a session, they probably need to see like 30 clients a week and they're probably going to be pretty tired. And like most therapists don't want to do that. And so you probably want a therapist that you're paying a little bit higher of a dollar amount for. And so like Lauren was saying, like, are there some great therapists that are like real insurance heavy? Yeah, absolutely. Like I've known therapists that are just like, they're in network with everybody and they're really good therapists. And they're generally hard to get in with. They're generally they're hard to therapists who take insurance. They're generally really hard to get in with. Yeah. yeah. I don't know if the whole world knows about the super bill idea, but I do think we could probably at least explain that for a second. Yeah, for because sure. I think that is really is such a helpful piece. If you are a client who wants to use insurance, but you have a therapist who doesn't take insurance, um, yours truly, then there is something that is called a super bill that is essentially a document that the therapist can provide to you that you can submit to your insurance. So, you know, a, a lot of like the major um, insurance companies like Aetna, United, Blue Cross, if they offer out of network coverage, then you can submit that bill to them and get reimbursed, which does really help offset the cost. Oh, it totally helps. And the thing that I always tell people about super bills, so yeah, so super bills are that receipt of service. They have a diagnosis code on them and they have the CPT code on them, and then you send them to your insurance. The thing that can be kind of frustrating about them, and this is what I tell clients is say, I say, Hey, I'm going to give this to you and you can give it to your insurance. I don't care what you do with it. After I give it to you, you can turn it into a paper airplane, or you can call your insurance every day and demand that they give you money. And they might give you $0 for the entire year, or they make it might give you a hundred dollars every session. Um, and sometimes the insurance company will mail us a letter of like what they have sent out. Like I just opened one the other day for a client who had seen us last year and their insurance company gave them like $2,500 for their therapy for that year. And I was like, dang, this is like, that's really significant. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, Mm -hmm. So it's definitely, definitely worth doing. And most insurance companies have kind of a, you know, they're familiar with super bills. Like you go onto their portal and they've got a way for you to upload it. And here's the information that you need. I want to say the last reason that people actually don't work with their uh, insurance companies as therapists is because they're really hard to work with. Mm-hmm. Like they're, mm-hmm. they yes. make it really difficult to do your job. Like yes. they're, they're not friendly. Yes. If they you're listening to this blue cross right now, then 
That's how I feel. Sorry. <laughs> That's true. Yes. And, there, you know, truly, like, as a therapist, we really just want to be able to be present in the room and focus on the things that make therapy work, which I'm sure we'll talk about in a second here. But to have then these other barriers that we have to overcome is that's frustrating because we want to be able to do the work that we, you know, are trained to do. Yeah. On that point, Kayla, I I know we wanted to kind of tie up on this when you say like to make therapy work. Like I do think that if you've never been to therapy before, it's helpful to have a base understanding of what therapy is and what therapy is not. So I'm going to throw that back to you guys. What would you say are kind of some bullet points of like, this is kind of what therapy should be or is supposed to be. And this is what therapy is not. I think about I, I I know that this is floating out there somewhere in like the TikTok world. Um, but one of my clients said, "Do you get excited when it's just like a event dump session versus like a therapeutic work session?" And I know that's one of the things that we want to highlight. Um, but there's this I guess there's like a some sort of like TikTok. I'm not in the TikTok world, but if you are, send it to us on N- really. Instagram. You sound like you are. I know. I'm like literally <laughs> aging myself. I'm 85. I'm not in the yeah. TikToks. Um, Shocking. <laughs> but there's something out there that like pokes fun at like a therapist getting excited about, oh, this is like a drama event like day. Like a juicy. Yeah, juicy day. Yeah. I hate, I hate those. Oh, really? How come? Because I want to get into the work and that I, like I think of it, I call that the cow, the crisis of the week. Oh, I've never heard that. Yeah, me either. <laughs> so we, I think we talked about that in grad school. And I remember having this group supervision where we like got way too deep into that analogy. That's like, how do you pay tribute to the cow, but then move back to the work? Oh <laughs> like, we just got so deep into the, like, the, uh, like, how do you, yeah. And so I think that venting, sometimes it's just, most of the time, it's really not that helpful. It usually just kind of like, elevates us in our emotion versus helping us work through the emotion. And so, and sometimes people come in, I will say here, I do like sessions where someone comes in and they're like, this is what I want to work on. Like I have clients that I'll see like every six months and they usually come in with like, here's what we're going to work on. And those are very productive, fun, efficient sessions, but they feel a little bit more directed when that's the case. Yeah. I love a list you know, to that respect that you're talking about. I love a list of like, hey, here are the four things that we have to get to today. And I think, like you said, pay tribute to the cow or whatever the heck you just said. And that <laughs> that does feel important, right? I want to have make the space for my client to dump some of that so that we can then use the modalities to structure how to process that effectively and, and hopefully walk away with building some muscle for how to deal with this type of thing in the future. Well, most of the time, the cow is also going to resolve itself within a couple of days. And so I think of like the mini crises that I've had this week, like before we started the podcast, like my son's school was texting my wife, like, oh, is he okay? I think he might be sick. Like maybe to come pick him up. And it's like, was bothering me. And I'm thinking like, if I'd gone to therapy and be like, and then just like talk about that a bunch and, oh, I'm frustrated with the school or something. It's like, you know, I'm probably going to get home later today and he's going to be fine and I'm going to forget about it. And then you go to your next therapy session. They're like, how's your son? And you're like, what? Yeah. Like, oh, oh, I, oh yeah. he's fine. It doesn't matter. It's like, well, why did we spend an hour on that? Yeah, <laughs> and I think that's the value of having a treatment plan, having kind of some like directed goals of these are the things that we're wanting to focus on. So if I do bring up a crisis of the week or there's something that I feel like I do need to vent out a little bit, we should be able to tie that back to what brought you into therapy in the first place and what are we doing to work on this versus just spending a whole session of me listening to you because you can vent to, I, I mean, most of us have other people in your 
life that you can vent to. Um, I have had clients say like, it feels really helpful for me to vent here because I don't have other people in my life that I can vent to. But even that then directs me back to like, okay, then maybe a goal we need to be working on is Is how to create that, how to create those relationships. So, and I, I I just want to name, like I've had clients too, who have been in therapy seasons where that was their experience, where they felt like I just went in and vented for a year or for 10 years. And I've had most of them say like, it was not helpful. (laughs) Like I, it maybe felt a little bit good in the moment to like get a little bit of a release, but in the long term, it's not really helping us rewire the way that we interact with our lives. Yeah, absolutely. I don't like doing treatment plans and you bring them up all the time. Because I love them. <laughs> They're very helpful. And because it's you're really saying, how are we going to know that we have been successful in here? Like, what do you want to accomplish? And when are we going to know that you have accomplished that? And anyone that I work with in any sort of avenue of life, I want that. I want to know, like, what is the goal? And like, how are we going to know that we've been successful? And if you accomplish that thing, then you can look at like, do I have new goals I want to set for myself? Like, do I have new ways that I want to move forward? But if you don't have that, I mean, because there are a lot of therapists that will, they'll just keep a forever client, you know, kind of nothing that you're really working towards. They're just using it as a space to talk. I like to call that an expensive friend. Right. Well, and the treatment plan really helps keep us accountable too. I will tell you, I also love treatment plans and I I am constantly looking at them every single time I'm seeing a client to make sure that I stay focused. So if they come in venting, I know where to direct them or help them and what am I committed to as the therapist in the sessions that you're coming in for. I think there's so much more that we could get into. Like I'm even feeling the wheels turning in my head of like, I would love to talk more about boundaries within the therapeutic relationship and other things that I've talked to clients about that come up as far as dynamics in the therapeutic relationship. But we're going to wrap up here, hopefully kind of leaving you guys with some tangible takeaway things to pay attention to, especially if you are getting ready to or considering going into a new therapeutic process for yourself. Yeah. You got three therapists talking about therapy who all love the art of therapy. It's like, (laughs) oh, what about this? What about this? So yeah, this is a good place for us to put our bookmark in for today. All right, thanks for checking out the pod today. As I mentioned before, Thrive is a therapy community located in Phoenix, Arizona. So if you are here, you can join one of our groups or do one of our intensives, retreats, individual therapy. We've kind of got everything to offer when it comes to therapy here in the Valley. And if you're not in Phoenix or you're somewhere else, you can still check out our membership course content online at Thrive Therapy phx.com so join us next week we are going to be answering some listener questions in our first ever mailbag and if you've got a question or an idea or topic that you'd love to hear us go over on the podcast you can just email it to us contact at thrivetherapyphx.com and then the last thing i'll say is if you are enjoying the podcast leave a review it really helps us we are new to this game and we're just getting started trying to get our voice out there so Until next time.